of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great guest on today, Morgan Gold. Morgan is now one of probably the largest kind of permaculture farm type homesteading influencers on the planet. Uh, Somewhere over three quarters of a million subscribers on YouTube, tons of subs on other platforms as well. Really cool stuff. And his story kind of begins as a genesis out of the TSPC community. And we're going to talk about how he found a little thing I did called the Duck Chronicles years ago when he was still working in Washington, D.C., and decided he'd kind of had enough of the hustle and bustle life and wanted to build a lifestyle business, a content creation business, and he's blown it up from there. So we'll have him back on in just a moment here uh, to talk about that and a whole bunch more, including ideas for how you can actually start to build your own lifestyle business and content creation business if that's what you want to do. For that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. Um, we live in a world of true economic uncertainty right now, it's, it, and it's been that way for a long time. And, you know, I'm telling you, I think we're having some bad economic times coming up. We might, we might not, but it's a good thing to have what I call a wealth wealth assurance policy. Like you have insurance on certain things in your life. To me, silver and or gold are great wealth assurance programs. And it's an anonymous form of wealth. You can hand it down to your heirs. You can barter with it. And there's just no reason to pay more for it. It's all the same. That's the point of silver and gold. The, you know, silver eagle is a silver eagle. So go to the supplier that's backed this show now for 10 years that has better pricing than some of the bigger companies like Lear Capital, Monex, Abmex, et cetera. And I actually have a personal relationship with the president of the company, should there ever be a problem, though I haven't had to contact him with anything in about three years. And I'll tell you something about Michael Whitmire that runs uh, Jambulian. In the very beginning, there were a few problems. And when I brought those problems to him, you know what he told me? Thank you. That's the kind of person I want a long-term relationship with as a sponsor, and we've done that now for 10 years. Plus, everything ships free, and you get a discount if you are a member of the MSB. Next up, hey, since we're talking about wealth, how about John Pugliano and the Wealth Steading Podcast, where you can learn to grow your wealth like you grow a garden. John is one of us, too. He's a ham radio operator. He's just a great dude. He's on the expert council. Uh, he is just a good guy, and he is the kind of guy that doesn't believe in doing something for someone else until you do it right for yourself. So John had a regular job like many of us. He made himself a uh, self-made millionaire through investing before he got his licenses and started working for other people. He now does that as a full-time gig. He also does this podcast out a few times a week. It's short. It's concise. It's the kind of things that you want to know about. So make sure you check out John Pugliano with the Wealth Studying Podcast if you haven't done so. And remember, he is an expert council member, so if you got questions for him about the stock market, about investing, about him radio even, Send them on in, and uh, I need more questions for John. I don't have any content for him for Friday's show. With that, let's bring our special guest on, Morgan Gold. Morgan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It's good to see you, Jack. I mean, this is like, I feel like been years thinking about, like, coming on here. So oh, I'm, I'm pumped up. Of course. <laughs> oh, can you hear me? There you go. You okay. Just... Hey, hey I'm, I'm super pumped to be here. So thanks for having me on, Jack. Great. Um I don't know. Somebody's asking in the chat why somebody's uh, mad. Maybe there's people that don't know. 
Uh, we are simulcasting today. So we're on my channel and Morgan's channel both. So if you are one of Morgan's followers and you're like, What's going on? Who's this Jack Spirico guy? We have agreed to this in advance. No, Morgan's. Yeah, we haven't been hacked. There's been no hacking. This There's is all been legit. No hacking. <laughs> uh, Morgan, actually, we're gonna we're gonna dig into it now. You kind of actually got your start from something that I put on YouTube, and I, you know, for the for your folks, I'll say I'm not really a YouTuber. I'm more of a podcaster that uses YouTube. Uh, but years ago, I did this little thing called the Duck Chronicles, and and, and somehow that kind of hit you and set you off in the direction you went in. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, sure. So it was about, I don't know, eight years ago or so, and I was living in Washington, D.C., working a job I was really unhappy with, living in a city I was really unhappy with. And I had this plan of like, hey, maybe someday I want to go start a farm. But I wasn't even sure like what kind of farm I was into. And I think somewhere down like the researching rabbit hole, I started thinking about ducks. And I stumbled on a video series that you made back in the day called The Duck Chronicles, which was, you know, you basically would go out there every morning with some ducks that you just got and you were raising them in a shed and you talk about, hey, here's what's happening and here's what I learned and kind of like each of those steps. And that got me thinking about, oh, wow, maybe the first thing I do with a farm if I were to ever start it is raise ducks. And so, yeah, guys, back when I was just dreaming of starting a farm, like Jack's podcast and his videos were like one of those things that I would listen to and it would sort of both inspire and motivate but also educate a little bit and ultimately as I started even thinking about things like the duck egg business there was some stuff that I stole directly from you and probably the biggest thing Jack that I've stolen from you over the years is all ducks go to bed and that I trained my ducks to go to bed based on the same method that you did and I even was saying the same thing of like all ducks go to bed like each night to like get them to go into their house and so yeah there, there's a lot of stuff I stole from you over the years and it was so much rooted in that duck chronicle series yeah and i don't consider it stealing i mean we put out content as creators and the only thing i ever ask and you've done this is if you use my content especially if it takes off for you credit it i've seen several videos where you credited us as kind of the genesis of that and there's a video you had that it cracked me up because it was all these people that follow you that had trained their ducks to go to bed with all ducks go to bed and the one girl in it I thought was the funniest was there was a cormorant sitting on a post. And she's like, all cormorants go to bed. And that that actually tickled me more than, than just about anything else in that video. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it was kind of the reason I even started Duck Chronicles was I wanted people to learn more about homesteading and permaculture. And I'm like, you know, there's nothing trickier than a baby duck, man. You get people looking at little ducks and, and people's kids were watching that and all. But I never really expected that it would lead someone to go out and build an entire uh, business starting there. Now, you went way further than just ducks, but it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's a, a thing that I kind of want to hit on a little bit today is that what we do as creators, whether we're podcasters like I am or more of a video format like you are, um, we have no idea the ripples we set into motion and how that actually impacts people. And people will take it and do more with it than 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 you've done with it. Oh, c completely agree with that. And and I think that that's one of those things when people think about the impact of their life, whether it's making content or just, you know, being out there and talking to folks at a farmers market, the more you connect with people and the more you're able to effectively share what you're doing and your story and, and really make people feel something, the more people you're going to reach. And, and if you want to talk about how do you change the world, I think so much of it's rooted in those types of actions and that, that type of an approach. 
Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, could you tell us a little bit more, like, what was it like in the early days when you set up Goldshaw Farm? Because having done this myself, I know that there's, like, this vision of what it's going to be. And even if you can get to that point, the, the space between the very beginning and anything approaching what's in your head is usually kind of rocky. Oh, com- completely. So, so I was in my mid thirties, like I said, living in Washington, DC and I, you know, for like the 10, 15 years prior, I'd been trying to climb the corporate ladder. I was working in like the financial services and investment space doing marketing. And I, I become actually the, the chief marketing officer of a, like a top 10 ETF firm in the United States. And like, I, gone down this road where like I'd achieved a lot and I was only in my mid thirties, but like I was realizing how unhappy I was with the path I was on. And so that sent me down this researching rabbit hole and I started to get into permaculture and farming and like, where does our food come from? And kind of all of those things that I know many folks go down that path. And I started to say, Hey, you know what? I want to start a farm. And so my wife and I were both thinking, okay, let's move back up to New England because we're both from New England. Let's look at Vermont because it's, again, it's a relatively rural state and we know we want to have some land. And then it was like, well, what's going to be the business model for my farm? Because I have a business and marketing background, that was like one of the earliest places I started. And I started to look at like, what's the different markets that I could be in? And, you know, everybody does backyard chickens here. Everybody does, you know, dairy around here. And so I started to say, well, nobody's really doing duck eggs. Maybe there's an opportunity. And so that's where, you know, I got into, like I said, Duck Chronicles and researching. And there wasn't like a lot of content online at the time about how to raise ducks and how to even turn ducks into a business. And and so some of your stuff was like the earliest foundational stuff I found. And that was my year one plan. And so eventually we bought the farm here. I quit my job in D.C., took a job here in Vermont where it was like a 50 percent pay cut. It was a career step backwards, maybe two steps backwards. But it was it was something that was going to let me live here on the farm and be able to start a farm, which really was my dream. I made the decision, too, to like, hey, why don't I start documenting that process of starting the farm? Because if I have these duck eggs, eventually I'm going to need to sell them. The way I can get an audience to to buy them is basically show them the process. Here's what goes into your duck eggs. And so that's how I started making, you know, basically a weekly video each week as I was going with getting things going. What I didn't expect is for the content to take off even more so than the ducks. And honestly, if I look at my businesses now for the farm where we do, you know, beef, we do geese for meat, we do hatching eggs, we do tree seedlings. We have a whole diversified portfolio of farm businesses. Duck eggs are a tiny, tiny fraction where I barely do anything with that anymore. But if I looked at my plan on paper when I started in the spring of 2018, that was like I wanted to be like the duck egg you know, impresario of New England. And like, (laughs) you've got to be willing to like adapt and evolve and move as you learn things. And I think to me, that was like one of the biggest findings right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we actually had a small commercial operation for a while with with duck eggs. We were selling the restaurants and things like that. Um, But I think we were able to do that because we're sitting just outside of a metroplex of 6.2 million people. And uh, it's a little different in small town America. But the one thing you find with duck egg customers is they're loyal. And so they're a good kind of platform to either expand from or an entry point. And uh, if you if you don't sell them all, you can eat them because to me, they just taste better. Right. Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But 
here's the thing, and this is the flip side, and this is where for folks who are doing research and dreaming of stuff, a lot of stuff you're not going to ever know until you start doing it. Yeah. Because for me, I was like, oh, you know, we're not too far from Boston. We could figure out ways to distribute down there, and we could figure out this and that. But we are in the, you know, poorest corner of the second least populated state in the United States in a town of 700 people here. And so there wasn't that market. And then I was finding things like, well, gosh, duck eggs are filthy, so your labor for cleaning is a lot That's more true. complicated. And so, like, there were a lot of issues there that became harder to deal with. But what I found is, as a side part of it, hey, look, I've got an audience that's all around the country. How do I have products that are shippable? Eggs are very shippable. Hatching eggs are shippable. And so it led me to evolve the business based on the opportunities. But I wouldn't have thought of any of that if I was just, you know, back in 2017 trying to make my business plans and come up with stuff. And so how you be adaptable is like so, so important to that stuff. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we had we had one restaurant we were doing 80 dozen a week to. They were at the limit of how far we could make it work for them, though, because we weren't into deliveries. We had people picking up and they actually liked our product enough. They actually paid a courier to do uh, every other week to pick up one hundred and sixty dozen. But then eventually we lost them because they decided that it was too much of a logistical challenge. And then we had geared up and then you got to find some place for that much product to go. And, And we were able to do it. But eventually we decided to scale back. We started uh, homeschooling my grandkids, and like you said, there's a labor factor in duck eggs that's not in other eggs, right? And one of the things you hit on really great there is uh, the the whole concept of hatching eggs. So I liken this to you can go buy a bunch of dry beans for a pound for a dollar, but if you break them up into little packets and call them what they are, seeds, you can sell them for a dollar a packet and sell, you know, 50 packets of seeds. And people will pay more for hatching eggs than just duck eggs. But the big difference is you're making sure you have a drake ratio where you know you got good fertility levels and you don't refrigerate them. Right. So you do less work and you get more money and you have a shippable product. And I think that's a really smart move. Oh, completely. I mean, actually, it won't be the biggest business of the farm this year, but it will be probably the third biggest business is actually goose hatching eggs. Right. Oh, wow. Where, you know, we've got a, a, a breeding flock of about 24 geese. Plus, you know, we hatch out a ton. And so when I look at like the business life cycle of my goose operation, it starts in February and I'm selling, you know, four goose eggs for about 70 bucks a pop when I ship them for hatching. Then once I hit about April, I take all of my goose eggs and I just start hatching them myself here on the farm. I then I'm selling live goslings in the in like the May time period. And then I'm just doing weekly hatches all the way until they stop laying in like mid-June somewhere. And then once I'm at that point, I'm just raising out all these geese that I have left that I haven't sold. And then those are the birds that I'll call at the end of September as essentially meat birds. And and so, you know, how you stack the different parts of your business, too, I think is an important thought for like getting a farm going where it's like, what's the life cycle of the animal and what's the life cycle of what happens there? How can you have a life cycle for your business? So I don't have to sell all my eggs for hatching. I don't have to sell all my goslings for people who want birds. There's always an end market at each stage of the game. And, and so it's like, think about that cycle. And it's like, you know, I can see why people will pay that for eggs. Look at what people are paying for goslings right now. Um, I've got Metzer Farm up. They're one of the better suppliers of, of chicks and goslings, et cetera, that I know of. 
if you want guaranteed female pilgrim geese right now, first of all, they're not in stock. You got to wait for them. But for one to fifteen units, you're talking sixty six dollars a bird, thirty one for females and thirty nine for unsexed. And I, I'm sure you've been through it. You know, when you buy unsexed birds, you get mostly males because it's whatever's left after they cold enough females out to to fulfill their orders. I'm not saying they're doing anything you know unethical. It's just how it works out. So that's if somebody wants a small flock of geese. That's an expensive entry point, you, and if you can buy eggs and hatch them yourself, you can save a lot of money. Oh, and well, and this is where you know I know that I like when I first started making videos and when I first started the farm operation, I was known more for ducks. Ducks are a very, very tiny part of what our farm does these days, yeah. because so much of what I've focused on is actually geese, because I find them to be superior because. One, they're a little bit less messy and chaotic than ducks, like goslings versus ducklings. Not a ton. I mean, they're not as easy as chickens, but they're they're yeah. better. And then two, actually, as I raise them, they're a lot cheaper in terms of what it takes to bring them from a gosling to an adult. So, for example, the, I don't know, about 55 or so, 60 goslings that I still have on the farm that, I mean, they're not really goslings, they're juvenile geese, they don't eat grain like i'm not feeding them anything and i haven't fed them anything since probably the last week of june they are entirely just on pasture i'm moving mm -hmm. them to different parts of my permaculture orchard and like basically letting them eat and then they go and then that's all they're eating and that's pretty much all they'll eat i'll probably try to fatten them up a little bit with cracked corn towards the end of september just to get my weights up just a tad yeah. But my input costs on those birds are like nothing right now. And so that that shifts the economics of what I can charge per pound for goose meat. I can talk about really the sustainability, carbon footprint and everything you think about when it comes to the benefits of goose meat. And just because I've been able to figure out that life cycle of the goose and how to make it work for the whole farm business, that becomes a big part of, of where I go with things. Yeah. And I'll tell you, um, geese really are one of the. Hidden gems, especially for small farms, in my opinion. I keep them here as well, and I treat them like small cattle because that's effectively what they are. Now, I'm not making a compare that goose tastes like beef. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying from a, a behavior, an intrinsic characteristic standpoint, they don't scratch like chickens do. They will do a little bit of mudding with their beaks, kind of like ducks, but not anywhere near as much. So they don't disturb the ground as much. They poop giant poop for the size of animal they are. And then they have flat feet, so they mash it into the pasture as they move around. And so you can use them in, in a lot of situations where a person has an acre or three, where a cow would just one even, or a cow-calf pair would just be overkill. A small flock to even a mid-sized flock of geese is not only a good yield, but it's actually a good method of pasture improvement. When I moved here, we had a lot of thistle on the property. It was probably the number one plant on the property other than a few other weeds like lamb's quarter. There is no thistle. It's none left because as soon as we got geese, they would run from thistle to thistle to thistle to eat it. And they vastly improved the, the property. And where you're at, I've got to believe it's even more of a good economic case because I live where right now it's 110 degrees and all the grass is brown. You live in like one of the most beautiful states for small pasture management that there is. That whole area, I mean, it rains regularly. It only gets so hot. Uh, you got your challenges in winter because it's a lot colder. But overall, it's just a beautiful place to, to do what you're doing. 
Oh, completely. I mean, so grass is never in shortage between late May and mid-late September. Like, that's never an issue. And again, I've synced my goose life cycle up to that calendar. And and so it becomes really easy. Yeah, I've got to feed my geese, like my breeding flock. I feed them all through the winter. Like, that sure. I have to do because, you know, we got three feet of snow on the ground. You, you're not yeah. doing anything. But... Yes, I, I I think your your analogy of treating them like a ruminant is right. One of the things I've actually experimented with this year is I have a couple of heifers in my lower pasture that I'm keeping uh, separate from the rest of the cattle herd because I don't okay. want to have them bred this year. I'm trying to actually have the geese directly follow the cattle. So the mm. stubble that the cattle are leaving, let the geese really clean that up. And, and that's actually been working pretty well. And what's nice is it's easy to move ducks and geese without fencing by just simply moving food and water. That's what so, I mean. so like, like I'm moving their pools to different parts, essentially where they're going. And so they're following like about a week behind the heifers and it seems to work pretty well. And then the growth that comes back is much cleaner of a lot of the, you know, your point, like we've got a ton of milkweed, we've got a ton of thistle, a ton of goldenrod. Like our pastures are littered with that. They're helping an improvement from, from that perspective too. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, to listen to you because we have, like, the exact opposite uh, issue. So in the winter, I don't feed my geese anything. They, they might take a little bit of feed that I put out for the ducks, but they mostly graze. And then right now, you're not feeding your geese anything, right? And, and, and I have to. I have to feed right now. Uh, I do irrigate some of the uh, – we have a lot of uh, Bermuda grass plots, and I do irrigate some of it so they have something to graze on because the ducks will do it, too, to a degree. But it's interesting just to hear the exact uh, opposite going on. Describe your farm today, because we've kind of talked about how you got where you are. Like, what exactly, I mean, you mentioned cattle and all. What exactly uh, does your workflow and your product flow look like now? Yeah, sure. So so the farm, which, you know, just for context for everybody, right, we are in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom. We're on 160 acres that used to be uh, an old dairy farm back in the day. We have about, I don't know, 55 acres of pasture. Um, it, within that pasture, we have about 10 acres that I have is what I call the permaculture orchard, which is interplanted chestnuts, black locust, mulberry, um, apple primarily, a couple of other odd things like butternut mixed in there. But like a lot of tree crops that have been going for the last five years that are still in the early days. We do um, ducks. Really a little bit for hatching, mostly for hatching eggs, but then also a little bit for eating eggs. And then I'll cull a few drakes here and there for our freezer. And that's about it. We have geese that we do for eggs, um, ha uh, hatchlings, and then for meat. Um, we do chickens. We do for eggs. And really the chickens are pest control more than anything else for our cattle. We do Scottish Highland cattle for beef and breeding stock at this point. Um, and then we also do bees and we do, um, uh, we, I just started doing, trying pigs for the first time this year and trying to kind of find a way to actually raise the pigs off of the burgeoning Vermont beer industry and taking spent brewer's grains as well as vegetable waste and that sort of thing and using that to feed the pigs and try to like off that almost all of their feed costs that way. And then finally the tree crops themselves where I do a ton of sprouting of chestnuts in particular, but also apple and black locust. And I'm starting to experiment with mulberry. Um, and so selling tree seedlings in bulk is another side business I have where I won't sell fewer than 25 trees to a person, but I'll sell like 25, you know, year old bare root chestnut seedlings or 25 wild apple seedlings or a hundred wild apple seedlings, particularly for folks who are looking 
looking for like, you know, building food plots and in hunting and, and really like embellishing the properties that way. That's another market for me. And so from a, uh, like a revenue perspective, it's like, I don't know, I think we, we did about 45,000 last year in revenue, but from a profitability standpoint, it's about 18,500 was like our kind of, uh, net income on the farm activities. That doesn't include any of the social media or content stuff, which, you know, is structured all as part of the same business, but I treat it as a different P and L within the business because just the nature of them are, are somewhat different. Yeah. You could have the money. We call them income streams or revenue units, right? Like that's what, that's the back from my business days or what's a revenue unit. So it might all be housed under one business name, corporation, LLC, what have you. But yet you have to handle those streams of income differently. And my guess is with your footprint, um, you probably have more revenue from the content platforms than you do from direct agricultural revenue. S- significantly more. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and this is where, I mean, you know, back to your question earlier around what did things look like? What was I thinking it was going to look like versus what does it look like now? You know, I'm doing multiples in terms of, you know, Google AdSense revenue or Facebook revenue or TikTok or sponsorship or merchandise or I'm getting ready to to launch a book here in in a couple of weeks. Like with each of those activities, you know, that does significantly more than the farm. And that's forced me to rethink about how does my farm work? Because if I'm making business decisions on, hey, what's the most profitable thing for this farm enterprise? I don't work like a normal farm. And I like for a while, I actually fought against that. And I, I'd like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of almost like put my head in the sand, like, no, no, I can be a normal farm. Just watch. And, and and at this point, I've accepted it and gotten to the place of saying, well, what sort of life do I as a person want to lead? What does like my wife want to live as a life and focus it there and then be able to, you know, kind of answer the lottery question of if I won the lottery tomorrow, how would my life change? And at this point, the way it's set up, I think I'd probably have some fancier equipment for doing stuff on the farm, and I probably might not take as many sponsor deals or that sort of thing um, from a content perspective, but getting up every day and taking care of the animals and making videos and telling stories would be the thing I would do even if I won Powerball next week. Like, And, and yeah. so yeah. that to me is, is really where I've tried to take things over the last year or two. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat, except if I won Powerball, where you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, I would probably go to a couple of my neighbors and start laying down stacks of bills until they sold. Right? Just expand, but I wouldn't do anything any different. I would just have more property and... The one, the one neighbor I think I'd buy her out just so my friend could have the place. I mean, right, right. Exactly. I mean, and that would be, if I won the lottery, that would be what would change. But the fundamental dynamics of my life actually are very much in line with the way it is, like it played out this morning and it's playing out today. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more about, like, the the types of, of animals that you have on the property. Because <laughs> cattle is something that interests me. Um, with the numbers you gave, I just have to see the the, the cattle operation it has to be a fairly small number of head. Um, yeah, so we're at about a dozen head of cattle, um, you know, handful uh, of cows, a couple of heifers, um, a bull, uh, a steer that's going to go off to processing next year. And and it's um, it's sort of slowly building in terms of like what that's going to be. One of the things I've come to the conclusion on this year is I actually don't have enough ruminants going here, where if I look at the amount of grass that I have, particularly because I just added another 30 acres that I fenced in this past spring. Yeah. Like if I look at that, 
I'm so far behind where the grass is growing. Like if I'm going for like peak managed intensive grazing, I'm actually behind. And so, you know, I'm dealing with this decision right now of do I add sheep next year on top okay. of the cattle or do I double my herd is really what I'm thinking about from a cattle numbers perspective. And I haven't made that decision, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoy working with them. They're probably my favorite animal, like non-dog and cat animal that I work with on the farm. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, do I want to continue to diversify or do I want to just focus on scaling up? That's the debate I have. But again, I don't come from an agricultural background. Before 2018, I didn't even own an animal as an adult. Like I hadn't had anything <laughs> since I was like a kid and I had like a dog. Like, and so... The idea of like, how do you slowly step into animal based, like livestock management? Like, that's where, yes, poultry is the gateway drug. For most people, it's chickens. For me, it was ducks. But then as I added things, it gave me confidence that in 2021 was when I actually added the cattle uh, in the fall of 2021. And so I started there with five animals, started to calf, and I've been slowly building that herd. And and that's been an experience that I had, and, and I'm glad I went slowly in, and that's been very much how yeah. I try to tackle it. Um, I know one of the things, Jack, you've talked about over the years, and I, I've stuck so true to this advice and passed it on to many other people, is one thing per year. Yeah. So, like, yeah, uh, 2018 was ducks, 2019 was geese, 2020 was actually just scaling up the geese, yeah. 2021 was cattle, um, 2022 was actually really scaling up the cattle, 2023 actually has been doing the pigs. Next year, like I said, it's either scaling up cattle further or trying to add like 10 things at once because that's like the ultimate recipe for farm business marriage failure is like oh, yeah. doing all that at once. Yeah. If, if I could say nothing to the folks that are listening from your end that maybe haven't heard from me before, it'd be that like everything that you need infrastructure wise, procedure wise, et cetera, for one thing and get that one thing operational before you add another thing. Cause I'm sure you've had people out of your community. God knows I have where they're like, I want to have goats and I want to have ducks and I want to have sheep and I want to have pigs. And like one year later, they're, you know, they're holding their head and they're doing a YouTube video and their face is red and they're like, homesteading sucks. I quit, you know? And it's like, well, I could have told you that that was coming because everybody that goes in like that, that always were, they either quit or they like get rid of a bunch of stuff and then do it the way they should have in the first place and kind of reboot. And I always also tell people, if you overstepped, don't be afraid to pick something to get rid of for a while and get your, and then decide if you want to go back into that realm again or not. Completely. I mean, like, like I'll use pigs as the example. You know, I decided to do three feeder pigs this year and just see, do I like it or not? And do I want to make that a core part of what I do? And my experience has been, they're okay. Like, I'll probably have pigs again someday on the farm, and I'll probably do it the same way. I don't think I'm ever going to get into breeding pigs. Um, but, like, they're fine, but I'm guaranteeing you I'm not going to do them next year because, one, I don't think we're going to need the meat, and, two, like, I just don't love working with them the way I love working with managing grazers like cattle. And so, sure. you know, now that I have that learning experience, I can say that very definitively. And now I know where I want to take the rest of the farm and like focusing on more ruminants next year is a big part of what I want to go. And it's from that experience. But if I tried to do the cattle the same year I did the pigs, I probably would have hated both and not done yeah. either ever again. And so it, it's recognized that you got to like keep adding one by one versus doing all the things that you want right out of the gate. 
I know people that love working with pigs, but also I remember you talked about the lottery earlier. I was watching a show about people that won the lottery. I don't even remember what the context was. But this dude won like $9 million in Nebraska or somewhere. He had pigs. He was a pig farmer. Like that was his main business. And they said, well, what did you do after you won the lottery? So the first thing I did was get rid of every pig that I have. He's like, I'm done. So like. And that's the thing. You, as you go through this and you, you move slowly, you figure out what you really enjoy working with. You know, cattle can get a little kicky and angry and stuff, but, but pigs can get really mad sometimes for no apparent reason. Cows tend not to do that. You mentioned sheep. That's funny because I was thinking that as you were talking, like if I was going to add something to what you're doing. Uh, and I think it's a it's a good niche. I'm sure you're aware of Greg Judy, and, and he's basically got everything you need to know documented and available. Um, the one thing I think that makes them a really good fit for a lot of people, especially on smaller holdings, is I think as long as you can educate your market, it's a little bit easier to sell someone a sheep, you know, for me, uh, or a lamb really for me, than a cow because of the size differential. Um, I, I, I've seen a lot of people, they, they would love to buy even a half beef, but they, they don't really have the space for it or the money to buy that much in one go. Well, but that's where I think, you know, thinking about the dynamics of your business model are really important and recognizing that my farm is a very different type of farm. Like if I was not appreciating that, I would do things very differently. And I don't do like half and whole animals. Okay. When I sold my steer, when I I processed my first steer last fall, I sold out of that steer um, at least. So it was like 450 pounds of total meat. I wanted to keep 100 for us just for our household. I sold everything else within about five weeks. And part of the way I was able to do that, I wasn't going to farmer's markets and doing that sort of thing. But when I did my annual goose harvest, I was cross-selling the beef to everybody who was coming to the farm to pick up the geese. So here in Vermont, we have an on-farm poultry exception where if you butcher on-farm, you can sell up to 999 birds from the farm or at farmer's markets each year. And so the way my goose sales work, and if anybody wants to get them, you can get them at goldshawfarm.com. I have people give me a reservation deposit for essentially the price that it takes me to get that goose raised to adulthood. They pay that deposit. They're reserving a goose. They get a date in like late September or early October when they can come to the farm. They can visit. They can hang out with me, take pictures with my dog, like actually get to visit the farm, which is like a rare thing there. And then they can pick up their goose and pay the remainder. And they're essentially buying it here on farm. So I'm staying entirely legit within Vermont meat sale laws. But then again, it's that opportunity to say, hey, I just got a steer back from the butcher. Would you like to buy some ground beef or do you want to buy some steaks? And so that's how I was able to sell it within a matter of weeks because it's there. As I'm thinking longer term about my business, one of the things I realized is I have this dynamic of most of my followers of the farm are outside of Vermont, outside sure. of New England. So how do I get a product that's lightweight, that's shippable, shelf-stable? And so I've been working on trying to set up a, a jerky operation for the next few years. Absolutely. I'm trying to work within all the USDA laws and the complexity sure. that exists there. But that's my long-term vision. And so that's where, well, if I could do something with, you know, you know, both like mutton as well as beef and it's like, you know, essentially dried meats like that actually, I think, is my long-term vision for where things are going to go. But again, that's for my model, for how I have this reach kind of across the country that makes it very different than, say, for somebody like my neighbor down the road who he just sells grass-fed beef from his on-farm store. It's just it's a different distribution strategy. 
Yeah, there's a there's a thousand ways to skin the cat, right? I mean, like one of the most profitable things we ever did that was the least amount of work is we did turkeys. And we would do a certain number every year. They were out in pasture all the time. Once they get past about five weeks of age, they stop trying to kill themselves, and they become indestructible at that point. Up till about five weeks of age, they'll they'll stick their head under a waterer and kill themselves or whatever. Once you get them out and about, there's no work. They get huge. Our largest gobbler, the last year we did them, dressed weight, was 56 pounds for a turkey. We took for that Thanksgiving, I kept that one for myself. I took one side of the boneless breast. It was like a brisket. It was nine pounds from half of the turkey breast, no bone in it. Um, the uh, the necks on them were like my forearms. I mean, you could use a neck for a meal for two adults. No problem. But the way we sold them, we did nothing. You came here, you picked your bird or your birds. You had to reserve them in advance because we, we sold them all out like the first week we said they were going to, before we even had the, the pulse, we had them all sold. And uh, you self-process or take to a processor, and you paid on the uh, dressed weight on the honor system. Never, no one cheated me, no work, bird goes away. You know, two days later, guys like bird weighed out at 42 pounds, and you give them a PayPal address, send you the money. And it was a fantastically easy thing to do. And, and you've got a lot of people asking questions here in the live stream. I'm trying to star as many as I can so we can hit them toward the end. But, like, that kind of thinking is how you make these smaller pro- – a lot of people are asking about smaller properties. Right now. That's how you make these smaller properties work. I mean, I put three turkeys boned out in the deep freezer one year for myself, and it was over 100 pounds of meat from three turkeys. That's a lot of production off a three-acre property, and I sold another 25 of them. Oh, complete. I mean, look, here's the best small property business you can be in, and it's tree seedlings by far. I agree. Like, not even, like, close in that, like, I will bury two five-gallon buckets this fall with chestnuts and, you know, wet sand, and I'll bury them underground, and I will unearth them in late May throw them in a garden bed for, you know, six months. And then I'm charging, you know, depending on how many quantity, like between five and nine dollars per seedling that I'm able to turn around. I don't even I could do that in like an apartment that has a four by four amount of ground that you could bury the buckets in. That's all you need from a space perspective. Like and and so the the both in terms of the return that you're getting on the amount of work as well as what you can kind of generate, like that's the business if somebody's looking for something super efficient in a small space. And I would I would add to it, like the seedlings is great. And then if you set up a couple beds with intermittent mist where you can do your cuttings and do rooted cuttings. You can grow 2,000 seedlings in a 4 by 8 bed, right? Well, so that, that, that that's, really a, that's a climate thing, right? So, yeah. so for me, not as much because typically when I do my cuttings and rootings, I have to do them in down in my basement because if I'm trying to get like them rooted, like mulberry I've been experimenting with over the last year, like if I'm trying to get them to go outside – I just find they get killed because it gets so cold and and we have such a, you know, deep and hard frost here. But like for me being able to do cold stratification by just burying a bucket, 
that's like my superpower. Growing apples is like growing weeds here. Like it like it doesn't take anything to grow an apple tree here. And so like, you know, the way I do my apples is we will press cider and we'll collect, you know, all sorts of wild apples, press cider, take the pulp from the cider pressings. And I just spread them on top of wood mulch in like yeah. a bed. And then I'm just picking them come October of the next year. Like, and, and so it's, again, you got to think about your climate. And so I can't do like root cutting beds without them like dying from over frost, but yeah. I can easily just throw apple seeds on the ground and get thousands of trees. That's interesting. I think it might've been Mark Shepard's book. I remember reading a book about someone harvesting apple seedlings from the pressing from a site, but it was more of like a, a small commercial operation. And they would they would dump all this stuff and they would just get tons of seedlings. And it was somewhat it might have been Mark because he's from that area originally. And it's somewhere up in like Massachusetts or something. I learned it from a key. So I don't know if you Akiva Silver. He's a tree yeah. guy in like yeah. Western New York. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. So so Akiva's taught me a ton of stuff over the years. And like he was the guy who taught me cold stratification and plastic buckets for, you know, oaks and chestnuts. He also taught me the, the apple cider method there. So and I don't know. He could be a source. too. He's got a great book, uh, Trees of Power or something. It like might have been his book. Yeah. It, you yeah. know, it's I've been doing this 15 years. So <laughs> things start to bend together. What made you decide, because it, it's definitely worked out now that the content creation uh, side of things is very profitable revenue stream for you. But I think there's a lot of people out there, and I think content creation is a great thing. I'm a content creator myself, you know, but it's more work than so many people think that it is. When I first started, I was doing some little bushcrafting videos and stuff like that, and I did one where I, like, went out and I filmed uh, – using nothing but a little pocket kit and working my way up the food chain with fish and, and starting out with a little fish and then bait fish and what have you. It was like 110 degrees the day I did that. And I had been busting on Les Stroud a little bit from the Survivor Man show, you know, where he goes out by himself with his camera. I'm like, I'll never talk crap about that dude again. The minute you start actually doing this, the amount of work it actually is, and you realize, oh, you think I'm just going to video what I'm going to do anyway. And you could have done it 14 times had you not tried to dock it. So it's a commitment. What made you decide you were willing to do that? Or did you maybe not realize what amount of work it was going to be in the beginning? Well, I think there's a couple things at play. So number one, yeah, I completely didn't appreciate that. If you're planning on making a video about a project while you're doing that project, expect it to take 100% more time. Yeah. So, so you will literally double the amount of time and work it takes to just even shoot it. And I'm not even talking about editing. I'm just saying no. just to shoot it, it will take you twice as long to do that thing. So, so I did not appreciate that at all. And I think that's like a warning to anybody else out there. I think the other thing is just like who I am as a person. So when I was a kid, I used to draw comics and I would Xerox those comics and I would sell them to people. I would sell them to like my local comic book shop and I would send them in the mail to people. And like that was like a form of creativity for me that I loved. And I sort of started there in terms of telling stories that way i went to college i actually studied animation and that was like you know how i got there and so the idea of doing like video and storytelling that way was something very much rooted in like my personal experiences and so you know i didn't want to do a podcast or i didn't want to do like um like a blog or like writing stuff out because i'm terrible at writing and i have like adhd and it's just not for me but i was like oh i can make videos i like videos and so yeah. it was the medium that spoke most directly to me and like what i was good at 
And so it was the combination of those two things. And then the third thing is, once I started doing it, I actually found a lot of personal satisfaction in the work itself, in that I think I would be very unhappy if I was just doing the farm because there isn't that creativity, there isn't that storytelling component, which for me as a person is so important. And so like the combination of those things made it a really good fit when I don't think it would necessarily be a good fit for a lot of people. I had the patience of thinking about like sequential editing and how does this image in this scene tell the story into this scene to this scene, like actually thinking about how these things fit. Like I actually enjoy that and care about that. Not everybody does. And so I think that that's where you got to be very in touch with where your passions are and then kind of follow that. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing, like for people that are thinking about doing it, I think one of the keys to your success is you have a thing like you were running a farm and it involves the farm and animals. And that's pretty much it. You're not going to be uh, out there tomorrow talking about something totally unrelated. And I find like it depends on the medium you're in. If you're a podcaster like I am, being diverse in subject is useful. I'll never have the YouTube presence that anybody who really laser focuses does because people are consuming that content. They're like, well, I didn't follow you for that. I followed you for this thing. Like, so when you look at some of the biggest channels, like you have a farm channel or uh, one of the guys I follow, he's a fishing guide or, you know, uh, there's another guy I follow, uh, Google foods. It's just, it's all food. And it seems to me like if somebody wants to be in, especially the more visual, the more you want to focus on a niche. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that initially that is a big part of it. And and I think the thing that, like, look, I'll be very candid. The thing I struggle with today is part of where I'm trying to go with my content is how do I broaden out? Yeah. So recognizing that there is a ceiling to how big you can grow in terms of doing farm content. Like, you know, I'm, and I'm about to bump up it. Like, you know, it's about a million-ish or so. And like, then it's like really hard to grow beyond that. And I'm just on YouTube as the example. And so how do I diversify and spread kind of what is the value I'm offering my audience? Because I think that that's actually the most important thing. It's like, you know, how do I start to tell stories? Like, for example, I'm doing this now about different farm crimes. Or how do I start to tell stories about other things in my life beyond just the farm and like it's something that like people don't always like and like those are always my worst performing videos but again if i'm following what i care about and i'm doing what matters to me i actually do think you ultimately find an audience for those things but you have to recognize it's not going to be easy to evolve and do that and 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 i think that's the big trade-off i do think though to get started and get going focus on one thing and make it very visual and make it so that you're thinking about people who, who would be the people who would be interested in something like that. Like those are the pieces you got to be focused on to get the ball rolling. What I'm personally struggling with now is how to diver diversify and get broader and reach more folks. That that's a hard next step. And, and I'm, I'm very much dealing with that now. So how have you managed to balance your demands with running a farm? Cause that's work with the content creation, because that's also work. I mean, basically, it's like two full-time businesses. Well, see, I used to have a third full-time job. And wow. so when I quit my full-time job, so I have only been doing this full-time, like just farm and content stuff since January 2022. Up until that point, so from uh, May of 2018 all the way till then, I was doing those two things 
Plus, I had a full-time job uh, working at an insurance company. And so, and and even before the pandemic, even like I had to commute an hour each way in each direction on top of it all. And so, like the magic that happened, like when, you know, I had to start working from home. It's like, okay, great. I saved two hours a day. Now I can kind of actually balance some things out. And then when I quit my job, it was like, oh, wow, now I can save another nine, ten hours a day, five days a week. Like that freed it up. And then, I mean, look, this is a luxury that I think I have that a lot of folks other than I don't have kids. My wife and I have no plans to have kids. We don't want kids. Like that was something that we talked about when we were dating. That's a time commitment. I don't necessarily do lots of other stuff. Like I don't have other hobbies. Like this is what I love doing. And so because of that, other than maybe like playing NHL 94 for 15 minutes just to clear my head, I don't have like a lot of other hobbies and things that I do. Like this is what I do. And I think that makes a big difference. I definitely think so. Now, especially young kids are work. Now, you get them up to a certain age, train them up, they're workforce. Um, but you have to balance that too. Like, it's you got a very narrow window when they're not like, hey, I'm going to go do my own thing and, and taking off, and, and and when they're actually helpful. But yeah, I mean, there is no doubt. We so I raised my son uh, up to you know going out on his own about the time we really started doing this. And uh, we started having my grandkids here because we do homeschooling. And we're like, I don't know if we're up to this now. <laughs> we did this already. It is. Kids are wonderful, but they do they do take energy, especially as you get older. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like I would struggle with that. Like, I, I have lots of friends with kids between, hey, the ages of like two and like 22 and watching the different battles that you have at different life stages, I think like thinking about that as a way to make the this job easier, I, I think would be a losing equation at any life stage you got. You know, your kids are going to be who they are. They're going to be their own people. You got to almost like give them the right tools and let them do that thing. If you're banking on any of that to make your life easier, I think you're you're setting yourself up for yeah. failure there. Yeah, I think that's not the reason you have kids, though. I do have a friend who has like 14 of them and they've got, they've got them as a crew, man. They've got them taking care of each other and all, but that's, that's not me either. I enjoyed having one. Uh, it, it did make things kind of easy. It, the big thing with one kid is when something was broke, you know, who did it, right? There's so many things you don't deal with. Like he's on my side or whatever in the back of the car. Cause we got two grandkids here every day now and you deal with stuff like that. Uh, anyway, moving on, like how have you, had your approach change since you began documenting your experiences? I, I haven't watched a lot of your videos recently, but I watched a lot of your earlier earlier videos when people kind of turned me on to you. Uh, and I know even then I could see an evolution going on. I, I think I've gotten crisper in like the types of stories and like really focus it on what's the story I'm going to try to tell with this video. And so I think that that's one shift that's like happened over the years and, and something I learned. And like for anybody starting out now, like I would strongly advise you to be like, what's your title? What's your thumbnail? And what are you giving somebody by virtue of watching it? Like, what's the benefit to your audience? Like if you're not thinking about those three things before you even like start shooting footage, I think you're only making your job harder. And, and so for me, as I've streamlined things and tried to like get more efficient with it, like focusing on those things has been a biggie. I think the other shift in evolution is recognizing that like content is changing now and it's always changing, but like 
you know, the role short form plays versus long form. I feel like when I first started making YouTube videos, I would see somebody like Justin Rhodes and be like, oh, yeah, look, like a 20 minute vlog is what I should make. And that's what every video should be. But now it's like that's not what YouTube actually likes and that's not what it rewards. And if you think about YouTube as like in the YouTube algorithm as like this entity that is essentially trying to keep people watching for as long as possible so they can serve as many ads as possible and charge mm-hmm. as much for each of those ads. And you just think about it as like YouTube has that selfish interest. How do you help feed and scratch that itch for YouTube? Like that's now recognizing that what they want is more short form and there's more short interaction and that's what the audience is looking for. And so how do I do things like, you know, like we've got over 2 million folks on TikTok, for example, that has been a different way to tell a story. And so as mm. YouTube's evolved to copy TikTok, I've been able to take a lot of what I learned with TikTok to my YouTube. And it's like, how do you think about that cross pollination? I think that's maybe the third piece to like what's shifted over the years. Are you using long form to create short form or are you making dedicated short form videos? My experience has been short form created for the sake of short form almost always performs better than, you know, long forming. And like, you know, there's lots of folks who will talk about taking clips and doing that. And there's some benefit and it can help you. And it, you know, it is, it does make you a little bit more efficient, but I, I basically, when I do my content planning, I'm planning on my long form pieces, which are like my long YouTube and long Facebook videos. And I basically take my long Facebook or my long YouTube videos and then cut them down and make them Facebook videos and match what the the Facebook algorithm is looking for. When it comes to my short form, I'm actually typically starting with my TikToks, I'm editing those TikToks and I'm making them each one is like a unique individual one. And then I'm looking at the TikToks that perform best. And then that will become a short that runs on YouTube a week or two later because I've got this weird continuity thing where it takes me so much time to edit a YouTube video that I need to give myself a week or two where like I'm running behind like real life versus what I'm posting on YouTube. It's like it gets messy. But the benefit is I can put four TikToks out in a day and only do one short. And I'm just taking my best performing TikTok and making it that short. And that works better. And so what I'm actually doing is stacking platforms, not content. I'm not starting with like one two hour video and then cutting it down to bite sizes because I don't find that audiences seem to like that, at least with my yeah. content, nearly as much. Yeah, I find the the cutting out pieces that, that I've just really started doing this work fairly well for podcasters because there's tools. And I want to talk a little bit about AI in a minute because I know you're kind of a fan of, of leveraging these tools. But it seems to work pretty well for podcasters because you're doing what we're doing right now. I think when you get highly visual, um, my experience in, in just consuming content in short form is you can tell a lot of the most successful producers, they built that for the platform. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't an also ran, um, especially when you look at things like, you know, homesteading and farming or like cooking videos and stuff like that. There's some guys on there that two, three, four million followers and they don't ever speak. All they do is like have symphony music playing and cook amazing food. And, and it's a you know minute and a half video and it really works. But you can tell it was made for that audience. And I think that if you really want success on some of these platforms, you have to somewhat tailor to them. Completely. I mean, like, look, some of my best performing short form videos are where I actually just take like a little tiny camera like this and strap it to my cat or to a goose or something okay. like that. And like, it's just you know, 60 seconds of a cat going crazy kind of thing running around the farm. Like that works really well for that. 
actually, if I look at my retention rates on YouTube, whenever I include one of those segments in a long form video, usually they don't do nearly as well because that's not what the long form audience wants. And so, yeah, I I actually think you're better off building short form. If you're, if you're very visual and it's very story based building short form for short form and long form for long form and like really scratch that ish and find how do you make the different platforms work together for you versus making the different pieces work. Yeah. I think there's like, the short form is more, and I think there's enter. If you don't entertain, I don't think you're successful in any court form of con, uh, content creation. So I don't mean anybody listening. Don't take this the wrong way, but I think it's more entertainment oriented in the short forms. Like it'll give you an idea or something, but it's not as educational. Like I can't teach you how to manage a duck flock in two minutes, but I well, can. You see what I'm saying? I, I, I do, but I actually don't necessarily agree that that's a distinction between short and long form. Okay. It's easier to do education within long form, but if I look at the vast majority of my videos, I think I fall much more in the category of entertainment okay. than I do in terms of education. And it's not because it's long videos. It's because the thing, you know, back to that point I made earlier of what's the value you're giving your audience. Mm-hmm. I want to give my audience a good story. Like that's like the number one thing I'm usually going out there to do with each video and like how do I make this interesting and how do I give them a good story and how do I kind of share the emotion that I'm feeling with them like that's that's what I'm shooting for that's not an education thing yeah they might learn some things along the way but the primary objective is is entertainment from my eyes and so I think it's 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 more about that um versus like if I was going to go out there like I haven't done a tutorial video in years okay. only because I don't think people watch my videos because I'm not that good a farmer <laughs> like I, like I, I like I, I I am still very much a beginning farmer I screw stuff up all the time I think the benefit you get from my stuff is it's going to be a good story and I'm going to be very honest about what I do well and what I don't do well that's a different type of value I'm giving the audience I think that's a really important thing there are too many people creating content that are like I call it the Instagram phenomenon. Everything's hard hands and everything's perfect and nothing ever goes wrong. And it, you know, the, the niche that's probably the worst for it is the tiny house niche. You know, because you, you talk to people that actually lived in one, about ten percent of them still live in one in three years, and those ten percent love it. The rest are like, it sucks, but all the pictures are always reading the book or whatever. Everything's always perfect. And I think people one are entertained by screw ups like just like it's 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 again the other thing is they feel better about themselves because they realize like well this person that that dedicated their life to this has problems and to me it's just a thing that i do like i'm have a garden in the backyard or a few birds or something and i have a problem well then it's okay they feel a little better uh about it as well and i think they actually that's where entertainment and becomes edutainment because by watching someone's mistakes you learn what not to do without going through the pain of doing it to learn not to do it. And a lot of times it's not really that you did something wrong. You did a thing wrong. You did 20 things, and one of them was the mistake. And if, if I watch a 20-minute video, and even if you're not trying to teach, if I see that that one mistake is the one thing that boogered you up, that's worth a great deal to me. And I think that's where you end up with followers that really support you because they feel like, that one video from three years ago saved me $10,000 of stupidity that I didn't have to endure because he did it. And, and that, I think, is incredibly valuable to people. Oh, completely. And I think the vulnerability of showing your screw-ups and, and what that does to really kind of show people, hey, you're human, I think that's really important, too. And I think when it comes down to it, 
it's very easy to see through the frauds on, you know, content and social media. And like, you can't fake it. Like it's, it's very hard to fake it consistently for a long period of time in front of a lot of people. And, and, and so the more you can just get comfortable with saying, Hey, I'm just going to come out here naked. And that's me. <laughs> like, like the, 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 the more you're comfortable with that, the easier it gets to, I think, make content that connects with people. Is there a point where you kind of realize like one side was influencing the other side where that maybe, because you were doing content, you were farming different, or because you were farming, you were doing content differently? Um, I mean, I, I think it's probably been that way since 2019 that it's always like that, where, like, even now, I farm different. Like, I mean, I've said this earlier. I farm differently than I would if I was not making videos, and it's mm -hmm. recognizing that my business model for my farm is different, you know? I have a friend and she has a, you know, a goat yoga business where she's like, you know, she's raising goats, but she's also doing agritourism and she's charging 125 bucks a ticket for people to come on a Saturday morning and sit next to the goats and have the goats climb on them while a yoga instructor does her thing. That's a different business model than what I have to deal with. Yeah. And, and, and it's just recognizing, hey, we're all going to have our unique quirks. And you have to, if you want to make your farm successful, you've got to recognize what your inherent strengths and weaknesses are and work within it. And so, so yeah, hundred percent that my, you know, like I probably wouldn't still have ducks if I didn't have people who watch my videos because they'd want to see the ducks. Because if I'm just evaluating it on a business level, it's mm -hmm. kind of a loser business for me. Like I should just simplify my life and get rid of them. But I like the ducks. They're kind of fun. And I think people watch my videos because they like the ducks, too. And so that shifts how I operate. So so I, I think it would be disingenuous to say that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, ducks are just friends on the farm, man. When If yeah. I look out my window here and I see one run by, you smile. You know, but I see what you're saying from a business standpoint. I mean, if you weren't doing what you're doing with the content, you'd have to do a lot more farming, just to be blunt, to, to make a living commensurate with the lifestyle you'd like to enjoy and the comfort and the security you want from an, an income, you'd have to be figuring out, like you probably already would have either more cattle or brought on sheep or something like that because you would need to do it. And I think that if you can skin the cat the way you have, where you have this, this multiple income stream, it's kind of the best situation to be in. I don't think it's for everybody because some people really love making content but they don't want to do the work of a farm or whatever the, the thing is. They want to just focus on the content. And some people love to farm and they don't want any, I mean, I mentioned Greg and the reason he has so much content is people go recording. I, I, Greg doesn't, Greg Judy, for those that maybe didn't hear earlier, he doesn't even understand why he's like a rock star in the world of, of, of you know, agriculture. He has no idea. Like he doesn't get it. He's like, I'm just a farmer, but, but he's a heart of a teacher, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to spend the time making videos and editing, so he shouldn't. He, and he's you know, that's, a, that's a real textbook for people out there like, I need more land. I think he has a couple hundred acres, but I think like 150 of it were left to him by somebody he had leased from. But he's managing thousands of acres he doesn't own. He does everything with leasing. So if you've got people following you that are out there like, how do I do this? Like, that's another model to look at, too. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And like, I've actually had that conversation with Greg before, right? Where it's like, he's like, I don't know, you got all these fancy cameras and like doodads and gizmos. And I just take my phone out and I just do this. And, yeah. and, and at the same time, it's like, yeah, because I think 
I watch Greg's videos all the time because I learn a ton. And yeah. as I'm scaling up my grazing operations, I don't think there's anybody better to learn from. And so that's why I value his things. But I don't think most of my audience would like watching Greg's videos because they don't have like the jokes and they don't have the quick editing and they don't have like the interesting camera angle. Like they don't have those things that I think my videos bring. And, and, and it's just recognizing what does your audience get out of watching your content? And then you're going to meet and match with different audiences. So you, you mentioned earlier, but can you talk a little bit more how you've integrated this storytelling concept with the content that you're producing? Because I think that's a big reason that you're so successful, because when we tell stories, we, we captivate people and they begin to feel like they know us. I'm sure you've met people in public and they start talking to you and you're like, no, wait a minute. Like, because they know your whole life. They know the names of your animals. They know the names of your wife or whatever. And it's like you've kind of put yourself out there. But I don't think people would really attach to producers if they weren't, one, genuine and doing things in a real way. But, two, telling stories because stories, they, 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 they sit in our mind. So I think one of the reasons kids struggle in school is teachers teach this very – melancholy fact-based thing but when you find a teacher that actually can teach with storytelling all of a sudden they have they're like well their kids are all smarter no their kids are learning right and they're learning because we we are social creatures that we communicate through stories and so you know can you kind of talk about that a bit yeah, I mean, I, I I am a storytelling geek, so I said I didn't really have any hobbies. Maybe studying storytelling might be one of my few hobbies that I actually have. And, like, look, you look at religion, right? There has not been a successful religion on planet Earth that did not start and root its success in storytelling and conveying kind of the intention of a creator and the message and where things come from. Sure. There are no, like... When you think about most of our cultural touchstones, they're rooted in stories. You think about history, like story is sits right at the core of it. And so, yeah, I think people are, you know, all the way back in the day of sitting around the campfire and telling the stories about the legends and explaining why the world works, works the way it does. That's how humans are hardwired to take in information. And so, you know, how do you have that story? How do you think about the dimensions and elements that make a good story? What are your ups? What are your downs what's your character that something how do they face adversity to get it how are they changed as a result of the progress what's that change that you can now see from the beginning to the end like it doesn't matter if you're doing a how-to of of like how to do something versus how to like how i feel like a, a dumbass because i i like let my dog get hurt like any of those things if i tell it in a story it's going to mean way more to people and i think that that's how you connect with an audience for sure Right. Um, just answering. Some yeah. Thanks, Jeff, but, for passing that along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we are. I will tell you guys, if you're doing what the banner says and you put the word question in all caps, or if I just happen to notice us a question, I do have about eight questions that we'll hit real quick at the end that I'm starring uh, in the back room here. So we will take them. But uh, he's answering questions, so he's not going to be typing while he's engaged. Um can you talk a little bit about maybe the content you found that most resonates with your audience? The stuff that really, like when you do it, you maybe you're not sure, but then you get not just the views, the communication, the feedback. Like what is it that really hits people? I, I honestly think it's, it's, it's always the things that are the most 
like personally opening and like the more you're, you're like really being honest and true, like, you know, I, I made a video a couple weeks back talking about, so I have this livestock guardian dog and she's had a lot of drama over the years. You know, I, she was the second dog that I got. The first dog I got, Toby, he was like the textbook perfect livestock guardian dog from pretty much day one and has worked out phenomenally well that motivated me to want to get a second dog and maybe i'd think about getting a female and maybe they could be bred together and maybe can go where she ended up not being quite as good a dog just like you know behavior wise her you know prey drive with working with birds was not nearly as good she killed a chicken like i had some issues there she had some health problems and so it's always been a struggle with this other dog. But at the same time, she has her strengths and benefits that, like, Obi doesn't have. And sort of how my relationship with her has grown over the years and how the patience that I've had to exhibit with her, I feel like, has actually made me better as just a person, as a husband, as a friend, like any of those things, uncle. Like, and, and like, I made a video talking about that and, like, really bringing that to life and showing that relationship with her and how even though she was a struggle on the farm, I couldn't imagine the farm without her. Telling a story like that, I think, is actually what connects way more with people than, you know, hey, just this morning I, I shot a video showing how these days my pigs are eating entirely nothing but apples and brewer's grains, oh, like, wow. apples that fall on the ground. Like, yeah, I mean, it's interesting and it's fun and it's good to see that other type of content. And I think if I just only did deep emotional stories, it would get boring as well. Mm -hmm. But I think to every once in a while, really pull back and open up like, um, you know, I, I uh, have dealt with an eating disorder where, I, you know, dealing with like binge eating disorder. And I was, you know, in the last year, I've lost like 90 pounds or so, 95 pounds. And like talking about that and like actually really opening up about that, like that's another example where it's like it's a deeper, more meaningful thing. I would never want to ever do videos where that's any the only thing I talk about. And so being able to touch on different aspects of my life and kind of have that vulnerability, but then at the same time, all right, let's go make some duck jokes here. And like, you know, being able to like bounce back and forth, I think that that variability plays into it. But I think if you can have those moments where you are getting deep every once in a while, I think it is important because that's that's that vulnerability is how you build relationships, whether it's face to face or through content creation. Yeah, I think what that does is it lends authenticity. If it was always deep, then people would be like, this guy can't be this place all the time. Um, and if it was always humorous, well, then it's just it's like a performance instead of uh, a reality. Like, you know, we have enough non-reality TV on TV. We don't need to replicate it with independent content production. We need authenticity. And I think probably that's why it really resonates with people. Have you got any key strategies you've used to grow? Because you grew really fast when you when you look at it uh, in the timeline. You, you're you're huge as far as reach now. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think a couple of things are number one, like what's the most important thing you're giving your audience? Like really respect your audience above all else. Like that is, I think, the most important thing. It doesn't matter if you have camera skills or editing skills or anything like that. I think that that's one component of it. I think the second piece of it is much like we were talking earlier about with a homestead, focus on one animal or one skill building at a time, focus on one platform at a time. Mm. You know, if I look at it right now, like we've got uh, about 800,000 on YouTube, two, two million plus on TikTok, one and a half million on Facebook, about 150,000 on Instagram, like each of those things. I didn't try to build them all at once. 
I, I focused on getting my YouTube content down and finding a process there. Then I took those skills and I moved actually over to TikTok. Then I took those skills and I moved that over to Facebook and found a, a way to kind of grow on Facebook. Like, like going kind of f- piece to piece was very much how I built that. I think people will try to do all the platforms all at once. And I think you're going to only overwhelm yourself versus find your voice and then try to find how your voice can fit other platforms and build from there, I think is another piece. And then the other piece is like recognize that it's all going to change where I, I feel like I've been doing this long enough now where I've seen the algorithm shift on YouTube multiple times in terms of what does it reward? What mm-hmm. does it penalize? And how do you need to think about your content creation? And you can't get all frustrated and pissed off saying, oh, they did this to me. You need to take accountability and say, hey, how am I going to figure it out, reverse engineer yeah. it, find out what works, what doesn't be obsessed with talking to other people and learning as much as you can to understand how it works and using that and then applying it to what you're creating. Like, I think, you know, you need to be comfortable with doing that and recognize that it could all change in an instant and don't take it for granted and don't get complacent or else it, you will find yourself irrelevant and in, in no time flat. I'm the last person to defend many things when it comes to Google, YouTube, and and actions that they've taken over the years. And I go back with that way back to the early 2000s from an SEO and content creation strategy. It was actually, I ran a marketing firm where we did that type of work for other companies. But when it comes to what you just said, no, they didn't do it to you. The ego it takes to believe that Google made an algorithm change to do something to Jack Spirico or Morgan Gold is ridiculous. They made a business decision based on trying to optimize their business. And since you optimized for the old algorithm, it doesn't work for the new one. And that's something we, you know, we did that in SEO constantly uh, where we would, you know, start to see rankings we'd achieve for people decline. Well, what did they change? Let's tweak things. Let's adapt. Right. Rather than sit there and have a pity party over it. So I think that's probably a big part of why you've continued that momentum. And I think part of that, though, is tracking things, not just going, well, I got a lot of views or I got a lot less views or whatever to legitimately look at your analytics and say, hey, there's there's a significant change and undertow in this. And how do I adapt to it? Completely. I, I, I think good content creators are a mixture of artists and scientists. And you have to be both to do it really well in this day and age where, you you know, the creative and the inspiration and like that sort of special sort of magical stuff. You need to have an element of that or else I think your, your content's going to feel very clinical. But then, yeah, if you're not comfortable with rolling up your sleeves and looking at the data and reverse engineering how an algorithm works and figuring out the objective of the company that's owning that algorithm and what are they trying to achieve and what sort of user behaviors are they trying to promote and then say, well, how do I make my content foster that? Like, you're not going to be successful either. And so you have to be able to marry those two sides to, to truly be successful and then recognize the recipe is going to change in a year. And so you got to be ready to adapt in that year as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. The other thing I would tell people is it really makes a lot of sense to try to figure out some way to develop direct relationships with your audience. Like I have an email list, you know, with with tens of thousands of people on it because they've subscribed to that content notification. And so no matter what YouTube does, that segment of my audience I can reach. And then the multiple platform thing, I agree with you on doing it slowly over time and kind of mastering one, just like mastering the infrastructure for ducks or chickens before you get cows. Um, but as you do build, 
by having those multiple platforms, if one of them goes sideways on you, and we've even had people banned and shut down or whatever, sometimes for nonsense, sometimes for probably legitimate reasons. Um, but if you have multiple uh, streams out, not just income in, then if you do lose one or you do have one negatively affected, you haven't lost momentum across the entire business. C- completely. I mean, I, I think, you know, like when the TikTok ban was like a, a lot of discussion last year, like there was a lot of emphasis on it. It was actually looking like, hey, something could happen here. Um you know, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, if it goes, it goes. I'm not going to sweat it because that's not something that's within my control. What I am going to be thinking about is how do I, you know, pivot? How do I shift my attention to Instagram? Because they'll probably be the big winner of, you know, you know, TikTok going away, for example. Like, and so you got to just be thinking about it that way. I think the other piece that you make is, is a really good point that you just said there is, you know, it gets easier the more you get used to stuff. Like, just like... It, you know, I was talking about adding sheep into the mix for next year. And who knows? Maybe I'll add turkeys into the mix as well. Mm-hmm. I've never raised turkeys before, but I've done a ton of geese, a ton of ducks, a ton of chickens, and I've done cattle. And so even though I've never done sheep or turkeys, I wouldn't be scared to add sheep and turkeys next year because nah. I have all the core skills down that would get me there. Just like if two new platforms started up next week, I'd probably be ready to jump into both of them right out of the gate because I've got a lot of skills around how to create content for multiple platforms already. And so, yeah, I might have to figure some things out and it might make it a little tough, but it's not the same thing as in I'm starting from zero followers, zero audience, zero voice. I'm just trying to get things going and figure out what works for me. Like that's a much harder place to be at versus you have some initial things built. You can now jump on multiple things at a time. What's your key uh, strategies for monetization? I think you're kind of like me. You don't rely on just one thing. Um, you have multiple ways that you monetize your content because it, it's nice that I get a, you know, a, a, well, not really a check, a direct deposit from Google for AdSense on videos every month. I'll, I'll take it, but I'm not going to rely on only one source. No matter how high that number goes, it can always, one way or another, they can decide they don't like you or they can actually change the algorithm. You can have like an off month. How do you, how do you monetize and how do you uh, broaden it so that it's not subject to one thing shifting on you? Sure. I mean, so like there's like the streams just to give everybody kind of the very transparent inventory. Um, it's it's AdSense revenue with Google. It's AdSense revenue with Meta. It's, I guess, a pseudo version of AdSense revenue with TikTok. Um, and kind of each of those is like a stream. That's part of how I make my my monthly nut. Um, there is uh, sponsorship dollars. And so I'll usually do one or two sponsorships a month. Um, and those dollars come in as well, and that's separate, so that's different than the AdSense revenue, but it, it sits on top of the same stuff oftentimes. There's merchandise, um, and then there's also, you know, essentially I'm, I'm actually diving into, so I'm, I'm getting ready to self-publish my first book. It's a novel written for children, kind of like a, call it like Charlotte's Web almost, um, okay. about my livestock guardian dog, Toby, and I'm getting ready to do that. I had publishing opportunities that I actually turned down, like, you know, big publishers. And when I looked at the economics of it and what they were asking for me to do in terms of IP sharing and what I was going to get for a royalty per book versus if I went the self-published route, like just as a business decision, given that I've got an audience, it made zero sense to go that route. And so now I'm doing this thing where I'm starting to do publishing. And, and so I'll probably do another book next year and, you know, getting that in as well. And, and so it's, it's just having these types of business is that's how I've made it work so far. 
in terms of how do I make the decision on where to go, I think it's a little trickier. And, and, it's, and I don't think I actually do it all that well. Yeah. I think I, I have struggled for years with trying to figure out a Patreon or subscription fee- type thing. Um, I've just preferred to just try to give out my stuff as much as free as possible. Uh, because for me, I've just still prioritized reach and connecting with as many people as possible versus trying to maximize each dollar out of the gate. Um, and, and at least for right now, I'm, I'm just continuing to grow that because I, I still see myself in the growth stage versus the just sort of, I don't know, call it milk stage. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure, like anybody that's done this for any length of time, you've had your share of haters and trolls. Uh, I find negative feedback goes in three categories. Legitimate negative feedback that I can do something with and do a better job. Um, kind of hater feedback, but it's not really truly a troll. A troll is the third kind, and that's the person that, like, they make their life about you, and they just, like, they follow you from one place to another. How do you handle those those different uh, types of negative and critical feedback? I, I mean, so so the, the feedback that always pisses you off the most, or at least pisses me off the most, is the stuff that's actually true. <laughs> so the stuff where you might not like what they're saying or how they're saying it, but if you, in, in good faith, analyze what you're being told, it's accurate. That's usually the stuff that makes you the maddest. And, and for me, those are the ones that cut the deepest. And, and I, I actually just try to do my best to listen for it and pay attention when I'm feeling that way and like really be honest with myself on it. So I think that that's one segment of it. I think the pure haters just know that there's always going to be people who hate you. So I am like loathed in the hound hunting community. So the folks who will send dogs out to like, you know, go tree bears and and raccoon, because I've had issues where I've had hound hunters come on my farm. I have posted land. I don't want them there. And I've spoken out on it. I've made videos on it. It's garnered a lot of hate for them. You know, and it's like this kind of constant debate of like, oh, you're anti-hunting. And I'm like, no, I, I hunt deer. I hunt turkey. I'm not anti-hunting. I'm anti-trespassing. I'm, I'm anti, yeah, it's like I'm <laughs> pro-private property rights. That's what I'm yeah. really trying to advocate here. And so there's folks like that who are just going to troll me. And I'm just like, I don't care because it's just like I've insulted the thing that you love. And I get why you're angry at me, but I also don't really care. And so I can kind of just discount that and write that off. And then I think the third category is just the people whose lives suck. And yeah. they're, you know, you were saying a kind of the, the professional troll and they're just going to follow you where you go and just hate on you to hate on you. I think on some level, I just sort of thank them because, again, that's a viewer, that's engagement. I'll take it and run with it. And then the other level, I pity them because it's like if you're building your life around attacking other people and that's the only thing you can do to get just like a little bit of a dopamine hit to make your life not seem as horrible as it actually is. Like I, I genuinely actually have empathy for those folks. I, I tune it out. I try not to engage with it too much because I think it puts me into a bad headspace, but it's going to be there. And if you want to create content and you want to put yourself out there, you just have to recognize that that's a price of admission and yeah. to, to like get frustrated with it and like let it take too much mind space. That's your responsibility to walk away from it those people aren't going to go away they're going to be there and you got to just suck it up i, I kind of put them in two categories sometimes trolls will just ban them they just get rid of them and just don't have to deal with them anymore occasionally i've actually monetized trolls i had one dude that was a real hater followed me everywhere cake new make new accounts new names whatever and he was a vegan and that was this whole thing that you kill animals and you, well yes and that's what i do and go somewhere and listen and he wouldn't quit. And I was getting ready to go on vacation. So I sell a membership product with discounts and things like that. And what I did is I created a discount code. And the discount code was bacon. 
and then if you wanted to use it, you had to promise on your honor, there was no way to check this, but you would buy at least one pound of extra bacon that week and buy a second pound and give it to somebody as a gift. And then we went on vacation. We ate a bacon sandwich on the island, and the sale paid for my two guided fishing trips, my bar tab, the hotel, and my rental car. The only thing I paid for in that vacation was my airfare. And I don't do that a lot, but occasionally I will do that because there's a point where you're like, you know, I'm the guy that's, that's sitting here spending 10 hours a day to produce this content. And you got this person that's literally like an online stalker at that point. And I have found that when you do that with them, one, at least it turns it into something productive and fun and everybody has a joke and a laugh, except the troll. Uh, but two, uh, it, it kind of makes them go away. Like, this isn't any fun anymore, right? Like, I need to go bother somebody else. Because there are people, and I agree with you, though, I do have empathy. Like, what is in your life that you care so much about what Morgan Gold said that you're going to, like, like watch every video and, 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 and attack this person? Why don't, like, this is, a, this is the most free market that's ever been created, content creation, in my opinion. Anybody can create content, put it out. No one forces you to watch it. It's not like... I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough to remember three channels plus one extra one on the on the UHF on TV. And you didn't have a lot of choice about what you watched. There was a few things you could watch. Like today we have 3,000 channels on cable, but we have 3 billion people producing content. Just watch what you want. Oh, completely. I mean, and and it's it's funny. So, you know, you said this earlier of like sometimes you'll just ban them. I, th I think that that is part of it, too, where... Yeah, you as a content creator have to recognize that you're going to have that out there. I, I look. I, I consider myself a huge proponent of free speech. I love engaging with folks that I don't agree with. Like heck, you. Like yeah. there's lots of crap you will say, particularly in your more political minded ones, where I'm just not of the same mindset. Sure. I don't let it like piss me off or anything. I just let it go. Like that's your thought. I have my thought. Yeah. Like. I struggle sometimes with like, hey, I, and I used to not do this. I'm like, I won't delete any comments or I won't delete any, you know, people. But there's a certain point where it's like, well, how much of your mental health are you going to let those folks like try to impact or like, yeah. you know, just seeing it over and over again becomes almost a distraction. And so that's typically when I do it. And then as actually I saw Lynette say this in the chat, like for me, I also can sometimes be a little adversarial and I sometimes get a little kick out of poking the bear and, and having fun with some folks. And so sometimes I'll just do that, too, where it's like there's nothing better than trolling a troll. Like that can sometimes be be quite enjoyable and cathartic. Yeah, because yeah, the bacon sale was clearly poking. <laughs> exactly. That's a, yeah, I think that's a perfect example. That was yeah. pinyotting the troll, putting him up and, and hitting him with a stick a little bit. But. Uh, it did pay for most of my vacations. So, yeah. <laughs> and who, and you got to love it when it does that, right? <laughs> and, and as far as banning people and all, when people bring the free speech thing up, is I'm like, you have your platform. You go do whatever you want with it and say whatever you want with it. This is mine. And I liken it. When somebody says, like, if you don't let me call you, you know, 20 different cuss words in the comments of your video or whatever, you're not for free speech. That's like saying if, if I don't let you spray paint negative things about me on my front door of my house that I'm interfering with your free speech. You're, you're free to make your entire house say Jack Spear goes a jackass. I'm okay with that. Right. But you don't get to put it on my house. And I think that we do have a right to our own content. You know, we do end up giving some of that up uh, with using platforms like TikTok or uh, YouTube or whatever. But in the end it is our channel or our group, or in, in my case, my own website. And I will police that if you're, 
if you're being just dirty to be dirty, I guess is the way I'll put it, you know? Yeah, and, and it's always going to have to be subject to your judgment, but guess what? As the owner of it, and, like, it's your house, to your point, like, yeah, yeah go, go start your own website. Go start your own channel, and... I can't control that. You do what you do. Like I, I think it's it's it very much is that. I think that's a very good analogy. Let's hit a few questions real quick so I can Definitely. let you go. Yeah. Um, I can't pronounce this person's first name, so I won't try. Uh, you kind of talked about this, but what kind of animals would you like to add in the future? Rabbits, goats. I mean, goats. I'll take. I, I love eating goats. I don't want them. Like my best friend Nick Ferguson says, if you want goats and you want to be happy, you need electric fencing in advance, and you need to have goat terrorism. That fence needs to be so hot that the first time that goat touches that fence, it's terrified for the rest of its life of that fence. Uh, I have another good friend, John Willis. You know, he had goats, came home. They were on top of the Porsche. No more goats. I've said this many times. I will never have goats on my farm because I'm so focused on growing trees. And all it takes is two goats escaping for an afternoon, and I've just lost five years' worth of work. And yeah. so I will – Never have goats. Rabbits, I would like to have. I think my wife would struggle with actually butchering rabbits, and like I would just be the only person eating rabbit meat, so it doesn't make sense. Sheep, I think, are highly likely to end up on the farm next year. And then the other thing I've considered lately is do I go into a dairy cow just because I like working with cattle so much? Th those would be the two most likely next candidates. Uh, Green Skull Farm, how do you handle geese in the winters that get negative temps and the pasture is covered with a foot of snow? So I have a system of hoop coop, basically. So it's stolen right from Joel Salatin, right? Where I have a large 100 foot by 20 foot greenhouse that I move all of my ducks, geese, and chickens into in the winter. That's where they're spending their nights. It's usually about 20 degrees warmer inside there than it is outside there. Um, they have like an outdoor run that they go out to during the day, but like I'm feeding them entirely. So they're not eating grass. You can't give geese hay. I'm giving them either grains or cracked corn sure. as their primary feed. Um, but really that hoop coop makes a huge difference. What I do is a deep litter bedding system. So just keep piling straw and hay over and over and over. Then I come in with the tractor and clear it out in the spring. And this year, actually, what I did was I planted buckwheat, uh, oat grass and pumpkins throughout the entire um, hoop coop area. Okay. And so I'm going to be growing that until probably like late October when I move everybody in. And then I'm just going to basically pick the pumpkins and let the birds do the rest. And I have my first level of bedding for the winter set without even having to do a thing. I have some initial feed for them without having to do much at all. And then I'll just keep piling it up and repeat the cycle for next year. Yeah, and I'll just say that in my experience, they definitely need to be protected from the elements, but they're geese and ducks are incredibly cold hardy. I don't get the winters you do, but we've had winters where it's, you know, five below zero here for a few days. Oh, uh, it does happen. And the dadgone ducks will be out sitting in the shade when it's five below zero because they're like the sun's too much. I, I mean, mean the they are way tougher than people think. Completely. The hardest part actually just keeping them with fresh water that's that's yeah. actually the hardest part yeah and, and i've actually given up on doing heated troughs what i just do is i'll get them water twice a day and have them in like the rubber tubs that are easy to like stomp on and break up and yeah. so i'm just constantly cycling ice more than anything else it's much harder to keep chickens here and keep them from getting frostbite than it is to keep ducks or geese by far yeah, well, we do. We shut off all the water on the property except for one uh, hose bib. We I have cutoff valves, and I blow everything out with an air compressor, and I don't have to worry about anything freezing in the winter. 
And then we like we did the same thing. We just refilled their water instead of once a day, two or three times a day, depending on because some of the tubs, I mean, they'll freeze into an ice cube uh, in, in in a few hours sometimes when that ground is that cold because that tub's on the ground and pulling through. But yeah, water is the the most challenging thing to me in winter. Um, Wayne is asking if you could talk a little bit more about the tree component of your business. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, the nursery piece is a, is a small part of it. Um, it's it's easily the most profitable thing I do. Um, and I put in my initial wave of trees even before I was living here full time back in 2017. And it's something I'm constantly updating. And I'm going to actually start expanding the amount of trees I have here, adding more rows of mulberry and chestnut and apple. Um, and, and it's just it sort of it sits in the background, right, because trees take a lot of time. Trees, um, record, you know, like I'm not really getting much of anything. I'm getting some apples and getting some mulberries at this point. But for the most part, I'm still not getting chestnuts. I, I almost had chestnuts this year, but we had a late, late frost that killed all my blossoms. Um, and, and so it sits in the background. But like 20 years from now, I hope it's a huge part of, of what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an incredibly good business. I think it's a good thing for any homesteader to at least learn because even if you don't end up long-term selling trees, the amount of money you will save, because you won't have to buy them from Morgan or, or from somebody like me. You'll grow your own because it's, I've always called plant propagation, no matter how you do it, printing money, right? And I, I've got my granddaughter all excited about a plant-based business because, you know, when she starts understanding, wait, I can, I can take cuttings off this, this mint and I can make three bucks a plant, you know, and take her down a, I took her down to Lowe's and showed her what people were paying, you know, six bucks for a mint plant. And of course, kid, you got to rein it back in. Like you can make a hundred of them, doesn't mean you can sell them all. But I think it's an incredibly uh, profitable thing. And you said it's like one of the most profitable things you do. And I, I think I would uh, critique that a little bit or maybe clarify that a little bit. You probably mean per hour worked. Completely. I, yeah. like, so let me use chestnuts, for example. And, okay. and I, I got the rough numbers from last year on my top of my head. So I probably put about 12 hours of work in my chestnut crop from last year and ended up with about $1,500. Now, those 12 hours were scattered over 12 months, but it's like not a lot of effort and work compared to what I got from a dollar's perspective. I mean, yes, like content creation will definitely pay more, yet there's a lot more hours that go into it as well. And so as a per hour basis, it's the most profitable thing, to be very clear. Yeah. Uh, Wonder Bee here says, what kind of animals would be good for a two-acre lot? I have an empty field with no trees and would like to put it to good use. One of the things I'll say before you answer is I would put trees in it. Um, I would definitely plant trees, kind of what we were just saying. And, and I, I don't know if they would be productive or how many, but I would want trees for anything I'm doing with livestock because I want shade. It's, it's a critical asset. Even in northern climates, you get hot points in your summer. And we've all driven down the highway and seen a bunch of cows and it completely denuded under the one oak tree that's on 40 acres. And the rest of the places, they don't want to go near it. So I think shade's incredibly valuable. You have the potential for fodder from trees as well or for a mass from trees. And I know you're going to say geese because I would. And the one thing I'll, I'll warn people, you mentioned goats and trees. Geese get a thing called goose rage. I don't know if that's the right term for it. It's what I've come up with. And I don't mean the goose that attacks a person. You plant 20 saplings, and they'll decide they're okay with, like, eight of them. And they will destroy the other 12. It's just something will strike them like that thing is not supposed to be there. And a tree that's as big around as your thumb 
a goose will plain hammer that, so make sure you provide some protection. But I would say geese would be good here. Uh, turkeys would be good here. Ducks would be good here. I'd be careful with anything bigger than but probably sheep. Yeah, and I mean, rabbit, rabbit would be the only other one I'd add. And I've actually done this experiment, so I can say this at least for our climate with our growing season and grass season, right? You could raise, you could hatch out probably about 20 or so goslings in the springtime mm-hmm. here in New England, say. And in a two-acre lot, if you're just moving them with poultry netting, you could actually keep those goslings in grass all the way through into like late September, early October. Easy. Um, and, and so, yeah, you could have up to 20 geese for two acres of space as long as you're willing to keep them moving. If you just let them have total access to that two-acre lot, you probably should only do 10 because you, you, they're going to overgraze certain parts and turn it into just a, a – like looks like a, a a putting green and yeah. and that won't do any good for your grass and it won't feed them as much as you need to. But if you had 20 and you were committed to moving them, you could easily do that on two acres. I, I no doubt you could do that. Um, let's go on to here. Tito joy. And this must be really important to Tito because <laughs> she asked it about 800 times. Uh, how is Rosie and her chick? Uh, so, so I, I have, um, so I have like regular chickens, which follow my cattle and are really about my, my fly management. But then I have the weird chickens, which are a flock of like silkies and bantams that I have in the mix. Um, and yeah, I had one that set up in my dog barn and she hatched out and Rosie and all three of her babies are doing great. Tito. All right. Uh, this was not really a question, but I just thought it was a really nice compliment and I want to say thank you. And I'm sure you would as well. Gail says, this is one of the best podcasts I've ever seen. You two are awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Gail. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Gail. This is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is like a, I, I, I just want to emphasize for folks who might have missed this at the beginning, this is something I've like dreamed about for years. Like I've been so pumped to be here. I'm having a blast. So, so thanks for having me, Jack. Well, thanks for coming on. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy what you do, and I think it's, a, it's just great to kind of complete the circle here. Uh, CJ says, uh, Morgan, what editing software do you use? So I use Adobe Premiere um, to do most of my editing, but I will say in the last few months, I've started to also use a program called Descript. What Descript does, and I know you were wanting to talk a little bit about AI tools a little Mm -hmm. bit ago, Um, what it does is it basically does a full transcription of your video, and then you can edit that transcript like a Word document. And the reason I like it so much is because I'm able to do rough cuts of my videos, so I don't do final videos in Descript, but I'll take, you know, four hours of footage, cut it down to a 20-minute video, and then bring it into Premiere and, like, polish it off and have, like, a really slick 15 minutes with music and graphics and a lot of, like, other stuff on top of it and so i've been using descript more and more and it's cut like probably about 30 percent out of, of time out of my workflow awesome i'll, th- I'll throw my the stuff i use i use sony vegas for my video work and i use it for audio it is totally overkill for audio but i know it, you, you understand this when you become good with a, a piece of software it's very hard to use something else when you could i could just be done with it and i have it anyway um, so if you're doing a podcast that's audio primary production, I would not go out and invest in Vegas. It's expensive. You, a lot of other ways to do it. But if you're going to do video work, it's a great audio uh, tool as well. And then I was talking to you before we got online. I've started using, for making short content out of my podcast, a thing called Opus.pro. And it's been really good. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it's allowing me to produce more content that without it I wouldn't be able to do. And I think repurposing your content is useful. Uh, Richard says, how many chestnut seeds are you getting each fall? 
So, you know, with chestnut seeds, right, Most for most of the chestnut growers, you're going to buy them by the pound. And so I'm usually buying about four or five pounds of chestnut seeds. And then come spring, that gets me about 500 to 600, depending on the size that I'm buying, okay. um, of actual sprouted seedlings. The germination rate is like somewhere like 90 to 95% is what I find by doing it that method. Um, so... Yeah, that's your answer, Richard. And are you doing like a, a Chinese hybrid or something like that for your chestnuts? Or Most of them are Chinese-American hybrids, yes. Okay. Kay says, would you consider doing a recurring theme on farming history like your Farm Crimes series? Maybe. I Yeah, so so I go down these researching rabbit holes on certain things, and like then I, I become an expert, and I want to tell everybody like all the crazy hyper-focused stuff I just learned. And so, yeah, I, Kay, I could see doing some history stuff. So you did a farm crimes thing. I'm not familiar with that. Um, well, I started, so I actually brought back my podcast. I was doing a podcast for a while. I stopped doing it just because it's like sometimes you, you can't keep doing everything, and it was like the least profitable content thing I was doing. But I've started to do this farm crimes thing where it's basically like a 30-minute thing where I'm breaking down like people who are poaching redwood trees or why people steal beehives and like getting into like the unexpected surprising elements about it and what's at the root of some of those activities. It, it's crazy some of the things you discovered doing this. Like, I'm a big fisherman as well, um, and I love fish. I grow fish on my property and, and ponds that I build and things like that. And one of my favorite fish is actually very uh, attacked maliciously by people that don't know better, the bullhead catfish. Like, so they taste like mud or ate their own poop or whatever. They're a great fish. And they used to actually be a fairly large commercial fishery for bullhead in the United States. Um, and there are fish. You can take tons of them, and they just – reproduce in, in massive numbers. Um, but there's a thing called the bullhead mo- murders that somebody sent me about this whole, it was a gunfight and I won't get into it, but it was absolutely, I covered it cause it was crazy. The amount of conflict there was over a freaking mud cat. <laughs> and, and I think we do discover things like that. You discover things that you'd never thought you'd go down that particular rabbit hole. And I think it's really interesting, and it's one of those types of things that when you do bring it to people, you're like, I don't know, maybe I'm taking a risk here. It usually ends up resonating with people because it was something that you only found through intensive research, and you probably found it as a sideline, and you, you tracked it down, so most people have never heard about it before. Yeah, completely. So, so D here in the chat just mentioned the Great Maple Heist, which was a video, a video and podcast I did earlier this spring, where it's like back in Quebec in like, I think it was like 2012, you know, about $10 million of maple syrup was stolen. And when you try to think about what does it look like to steal $10 million of maple syrup, that is something that's really, really interesting. And so that's yeah. like an example of a farm crimes video. That's a lot of maple syrup to steal. That's a lot of maple syrup after you stole it. Now you got to fence it, right? You can't just go down to Bill's Maple Syrup Emporium and get $10 million for your maple syrup. you got to do something with it. Exactly. And so the video broke down all of that. And here's actually the crazier thing. So remember, maple syrup's got a ratio of about 50 to 1, 10 to 1, or 50 or 40 to 1. So that's how many gallons of sap is that when you think about it from a stealing perspective? It's, it's insane. So, yeah. That's crazy. So uh, this question here is, do you have a stream or river on your land of any size, or are you dependent on piped-in public water supply? So we have so our our primary house water is well water. Okay. Um, we have 
two major streams and then like some tiny little, you know, seasonal things scattered around here. And then we have a handful of springs. One of them I'm actually in the process of developing right now. Um, so yeah, all the water's coming from here. And again, that's where I'm kind of lucky. And you always have to recognize your climate where Jack, I know, you know, you're in Texas and you've talked a lot about you sit on like rock basically. Yeah, yeah. For me, I'm in Vermont, which other than like the Pacific Northwest is one of the wettest climates in America. And I've got a ton of groundwater options. And so, you know, water supply for me is is not nearly as big problem as in other parts of the country. Yeah, definitely. We have to rely on irrigation for the things that we grow through our summers here. We just have to. Um, we have a well as well. And I'll tell you, it's the greatest thing in the world until it until it breaks, because then there, there's no nobody's coming from the city or the county to fix it for you. And uh, last year, I'd really gotten ahead with some extra money that I was going to put aside for some other things. And I ended up dropping 3,800 bucks into replacing the well pump. Um, but it does make from a standpoint of irrigation, you're not dealing with any chemicals in your water. And like I said, I grow a lot of fish and I do them in smaller ponds, like 5,000 gallon ponds. And so there's no concerns. I mean, you just, you throw a float valve in your sump and everything takes care of itself. So if you have the option, I would definitely explore it, except Budget for about once every 10 to 15 years, a major expense with a well. It's just the way that it works. And uh, then remember also, if your power goes off and you don't have redundant backup power, you also don't have water. That's that's another thing, you know. Um, got only a couple more here. Uh, Esther says, do you know that you help children in Germany learn English? Different goal target for your content. Thank you for teaching. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that, Esther. Thank you. <laughs> I did not know that. That's that's something new. It's a weird thing when you realize that, like, you know your content's global, but you don't really think about it. I remember years ago I got a, a very heartfelt email about the fact that this guy was a contractor in Iraq, and uh, not a defense contractor. He was, like, a reconstruction contractor, and he had a crew of about 18 Iraqis that he led that, you know, were building buildings and stuff like that. And one of them spoke English. And I remember he emailed me, told me that there was they would sit at lunch and listen to my podcast. And the one guy that spoke English would translate it for the rest of the crew. And I was like, why? I mean, that's the kind of and that's what I would. The reason I tell that story. And then, you know, Esther mentioning that about kids in Germany learning. If you're thinking about doing this, those will be your paydays. You saw Morgan's face if you're watching the video versus the audio here um, when he heard that. Those are to me. That's my biggest paydays. And I, I get, I get, I make a joke and I say I'm a jerk, right? And I, and I'm a jerk. And the reason this started is I, when I'm very beginning, I'd be like, pay your debt off or whatever. I'm like, you're never gonna write me an email someday and go, you know, Jack, because of you, I paid off my debt and I have all this extra money and you're such a jerk. I hate you for that. And then people started doing it as a joke. They would tell me all the good things from the content and say you're a jerk because. And to me, when I get those Jack, you're a jerk emails. Those are the best days that I have when somebody's actually done something and bettered their life because of the content you're putting out. And I think if you're going to be successful in this business, that's got to be part of what drives you. Oh, I mean, like Jack, I mean, like, let's bring this whole thing full circle, right? Where we started the conversation. Like, when I think back to myself in, say, 2015 or 2016, it was like Joel Salatin, Justin Rhodes, you, uh, Diego Footer, a couple of other folks, Greg Judy, like that were like the motivation and inspiration for me to say, hey, I want to go out there and I want to start a farm and I want to kind of figure out a way to make it all work. Like 
that's rooted in that. And so like the, the ripple and impact that you can have when you make contact content, it's just, it's incredible. And it's super, super gratifying to see it. This one has to be for you. How is your Tesla Powerwall doing? Any plans to do an update video? Oh, it, it's it's doing really well. I probably I, I probably will actually do it because one of the things that I, I'm actually I've done here is we've started a solar co-op with a few of our neighbors, and so rather than putting solar panels on like the roof of our new barn or anything like that, we actually have a, a neighboring farm has a field where we're getting all of our power from. And so I'll, I'll do a video on that. But we also have Tesla power walls because when we were doing some updates to our house, I was looking at hey, do I get a, a generator and like figure out a generator system because we live in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. We're in Vermont. We get storms. We lose power a lot. I opted actually to go with Tesla Powerwalls instead, and it's worked out really great over the last few years. And so, yeah, uh, so far, so good. Absolutely, man. So this has been great. Uh, I really appreciate you being with us today. Tell people, for especially, and you got a lot of people in a live stream from your channel, uh, but this is going to go out on audio about a half hour from right now if you're watching it live. And there's a couple hundred thousand TSP fanatics out there that I'm sure would like to know more about what you're doing, Morgan. So tell them how they can find you, about your website, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So if you if you want to find me, it's it's just look for Goldshaw Farm. So three words, G-O-L-D-S-H-A-W, Farm. My last name's Morgan Gold, so that's where that part came from. The family that owned the farm for 100 years was the Shaw Farm, the family. Okay. So that's where that part came from. Um, and yeah, you look for us on YouTube. We put out three long videos a week plus shorts on every other day on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, all just Goldshaw Farm, or you can go to goldshawfarm.com. And then the last thing I'll say just a promotional is I have a new book coming out this fall. September 18th is the, the launch date. It's called Toby Dog of Goldshaw Farm. It's the story of my livestock guardian dog when he first came to the farm and got to know the ducks and geese and like figure out his place in the world. And it's, it's written for anybody like eight years old and up. It's, it's a novel. It's like, I don't know, kind of like Charlotte's Web style of talking really? animals type of thing. But I, I think it's going to be a really good story. There's going to be an audio version coming out on Audible where I read it and I have some actors playing some awesome roles. Um, the Kindle version is available for pre-order, so, so check that out. Toby Dog of Goldshaw Farm. Well, and folks, if you uh, check down in the video uh, notes below, you'll see a link over to an audio uh, if you click it this moment, if you're watching it live, it won't work because we're not done yet. And as soon as this is over, I'll strip the audio out and get the audio version of the podcast out. I will have all of Morgan's links uh, in those audio notes for you. And uh, you can also then download and listen to the audio. But if you want to re-listen to this, like it was really awesome and you, you, you want to take notes or something. Uh, one of the things I love about audio is it's a, it's a format that you can multitask in. You can be doing one thing. Like you can't really watch a video and drive a car safely, but you can listen in your car. So uh, that audio will be available. And my podcast and this particular one in particular is on every podcast platform, Stitcher, Apple, Fountain, you name it. If it's a podcast platform, Pocket Cast, et cetera, we're on it. Uh, so you can come check it out if you want to do that. Morgan, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Jack. This was a lot of fun. Great chatting. And because we went so long, I'm not going to do a closing segment today, guys. I'm just going to go ahead and wrap up. I uh, appreciate you guys being with us today. If you're from Morgan's side of things, come check us out. If you're from my side of things, make sure you go check Morgan out. Uh, he's a really good dude. He's doing some really great content. And uh, I'll have another episode for you guys tomorrow. I'll be talking uh, about, I don't even know yet. It's going to be a, a Just Jack show tomorrow. Uh, so tune in if you, uh, if you like what you heard today. And Morgan, again, thank you for being with us today. Are they going to bail you out just run?
Show you a better way. 